0: Welcome to Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim. The real, relevant, and necessary coaching conversations to help you navigate coaching, teaching, learning, and life.
1: Welcome back to Episode 9 of Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim uh we brought you a a special bonus episode this week about our ec rocket chat if you didn't get a chance it's pretty short one it's like half an hour long um just goes kind of into the into the logistics and the logic behind having a chat and what it's for and really who it's for um hopefully you get a chance to listen to that one it's 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 a lot shorter than our normal episodes It just kind of give you give you a little taste of why we do what we do And hopefully you'll join us on one of those chats or you'll, uh, you know, DM us, tweet at us, whatever it is to to get involved, because we are always looking to to serve and add value to the coaching community. But um, today, just going to jump right in because I think this one, you know, could end up being a two-parter. You never know. But uh, a lot to say about this, a lot of questions to ask, a lot of points to raise. Um, About environments and and practice design and sort of environmental design, and why we tend to separate teaching and coaching into two different professions and two different buckets. Um, And then also drawing some of the parallels between the two, and and maybe asking some questions that coaches who consider themselves as just coaches or they've only ever quote unquote coached and think they're teaching, um, as you know. Kyle and I scour, scour Twitter and the internet for hashtag teach, and it's not teaching that's happening, um, you know, really getting into a lot of those things. And I think Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong, this is probably one of the things that you and I are probably the most passionate about.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I would say this is probably the thing that I, or one of my first, um, epiphanies revelations if you will um, as a coach was um, sort of hitting me that teaching and coaching didn't have to be you know mutually exclusive jobs and it was probably the area that I was lacking the most as a coach and thinking that I had to be somebody completely different um, between the hours of eight and three and then three and eight and I, I feel like I was a very successful teacher. Like I was, I was pretty good at that. Um, but I felt like for some reason, when I went to the gym, I had to be somebody different. I had to be coach. I had to put the whistle on, right. I had to pull the clipboard out and I had to start doing things a lot differently. And uh, you know, one of those, the the first real big sort of aha moments for me once, once you and I got together and started talking was realizing that that wasn't the case um, that, that I I needed to lean more into who I already was and not who I was trying to espouse to be, you know, somebody else, somebody that I've seen on TV, you know, stomping around and ripping the jacket off and, you know, doing all these things or saying certain things and trying to emulate somebody that I didn't even know. Um, and really just emulating. I don't know if I'm too, I'm too far off base here, but really like characters that are played on TV. Um, and I think that's uh, kind of ultimately what we see when we watch sporting events and you see, baseball managers running out bumping bellies with umpires and, you know, people are, you know, being quote unquote mic'd up in a, in a huddle and you think you're getting access. It's not real access. It's not, it's not actual legit access to what's going on inside, you know, really great master teacher, master coaches, um, you know, practices and meetings and huddles and stuff. And, and, when you're young and I think you're just, you're, you're looking for identity and, and direction you end up just trying to play the character that you see on TV. Um, when in reality, your chances are you're probably a pretty good teacher in the classroom and you need to lean more into the things that make you you know, successful there. Um, and just a few things kind of off the top of my head, I think we talked about this in maybe a previous episode already, but just in kind of how we're accessing engagement and motivation within class and making it more about our students, um, kind of leading with questions and inquiry and that 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 idea of getting it wrong to get it right, um, which I think we talked about in the chat episode. Um, I was very student-led, student-driven in my classroom. And I wasn't always that way. I, I wasn't that way when I was 22, 23, 24 years old. Like, don't get me wrong. It took a while to evolve into that person too. But I very quickly became more of a kind of a player-led teacher um, where we would start with class um, you know, with a question or inquiry and kind of let them throw some spaghetti against the wall, see what would stick, get it wrong to get it right. Let's see where we're at. And then we would kind of go from there. But in in practice, I wanted things to be so controlled. I wanted to control everything. I, I, I loved when I would get the what I thought was a compliment um, was that my practices were so like mechanistic. You know, we were a machine. We, it was like the military out there, right? Like we were crisp. That practice was highly... It was a well-oiled machine it was highly organized you know the, the ball rack was placed precisely where the ball rack needed to be and there were water breaks perfectly timed and things that cones were set in certain places and you know at the end of the day it was kind of like well, i was so worried about where my cones were going to be that i didn't really realize that i didn't need to have cones <laughs> to have a basketball practice that that was kind of hitting the bullseye of the wrong target there um and, and and maybe we can get into this a little bit later but One of our conversations that I I can't remember exactly when this came up, but us being educators, we talk about, you know, Bloom's taxonomy. And if you're a teacher, you've probably been had this crammed down your throat back into your, your schooling days. And you basically start with that, that base of knowledge and work your way up to creation. And it was sort of this idea of, well, why are we doing it that way? If we were to flip this thing up on its head and go backwards we would be getting so much more bang for our buck there. So instead of trying to cram facts, cram statistics, cram history dates, cram definitions you know, down our, our players' throats to get them to memorize things where they don't truly learn anything. You know, they memorize it for the test, they make their B, and then next week they don't know anything. And it's sort of the same way when we're trying to teach our players a new offense, a new defense, a new blocking scheme, a new drill, whatever. Like they, lo- they know it, and then they, it, it goes out their mind because they don't truly know it. But if we were to flip that upside down and start with the creative piece, we wouldn't really know much right then. But by the time we got to the end of that process, we would know so much more. And a lot of it would be by accident, honestly. Like we would end up learning things that we didn't even know we needed to learn. Um, And that was, uh, again, kind of a long-winded answer here. But that to me was one of the the biggest realizations and probably one of my biggest mistakes and hiccups was thinking that I had to be somebody completely different from eight to three, and then three
1: to eight. Well, I want to take that a step further when you talk about being somebody different. I think it's also the different motivation of whether you have to be in control or the students have to be in control or the learners have to be in control. And I think the propensity for coaches to believe that they have to be in control of their practice limits the amount of learning that can happen. And it's generally something that's inadvertent because like you said, it's like, I'm just trying to emulate what I see on TV or what I think should think works. And, you know, the myth of learning styles and all of this stuff. I mean, there's so much research out there now about those things. But, you know, if you think about coaches who plan practice according to what they're going to say and what we are going to do versus what the learner is going to learn those are the coaches that generally find themselves plateauing because their players are plateauing because their practice becomes or not just their practice but any of those learning interactions so film sessions scout practice you, you know you name it any of those things become very very coach focused on the coach's agenda versus what it is the players need to be able to master in order to move to the next thing. And so I think when we separate the learning environment and the point of teaching, which is to create mastery of interrelated topics, of interrelated skills, to be able to then apply them to anything, that's really the true essence of learning. If we're not keeping that as the central thing, and we think as coaches, as educators, that it is about us. It is about what we need to get across and what we need to get done. And I'm sure there's coaches out there laughing right now because as as they have planned practice in the past, listen, I'm I'm guilty of it, just like you're guilty of it, right? I got to get this in, Mm
0: -hmm. we
1: got to get this done. This is what's important today. This is our task today. Well, I would challenge you if you've ever taught in a classroom before, And we'll get into captive audiences versus non-captive audiences here in a second. But if you've ever taught in a classroom before and you had this great lesson plan where we were like, yeah, we got to get this done today. Like in my AP econ class, we had to do production possibilities curves today because tomorrow we got to go on to like the prisoner's dilemma, right? Like these are just things we had to get in before the AP test. All of a sudden, my projector doesn't work. All of a sudden, my notes aren't there. All of a sudden, kids have forgotten their pencils. They're not ready to go. We have a fire drill in the middle of class. Picture day. Picture day. Or we get into a conversation as a class that is far more important for the development of those students than anything I could teach them that day. Or we've got questions going on And we, what are you going to say in a classroom? We don't have time for questions. Come find me afterwards, right? Maybe you might do that. Maybe you have a parking lot or something like that in your classroom. To me, that's not really a strategy for success if we're trying to maximize the learning opportunities for a student. So when we take that idea and we look at our players as learners and we think about the best classrooms we've ever been in, how many of us would rate our gym or our field or our playing surface or our film room or the things we give our student athletes in terms of scouting reports or, or handouts or any of those things, how many of us would rate that amongst the best classrooms that we've ever been in the best learning environments we've ever been in? I am curious what you think about that question.
0: I would imagine it's not really high on the list and then, and, and, first reaction is just probably because we don't think about it in terms of being a learning environment. It's more of a controlled, I prescribe and you do environment. And if you don't, you run. And if you don't again, then you run again. And then you'll run again until you become compliant or you finally accidentally get it right one time. And then we go home over the weekend and we come back and you get it wrong again because we've never really truly learned anything. And that's, that's where the essence of this, I, I think, maybe we should have, I should have probably led with this. We're assuming on our pyramid, on our pyramid pathway, our four levels, environmental design, where we're at right now is level three. And we're under the assumption that we've already established the human component, the recruiting, the relationship, the connections that have been made. And we've we've talked about player and person and program development to get us to this level. So we're sort of, not that we, we're ignoring those two, but we're sort of working under the assumption that that groundwork has been laid. And I wondered sometimes how often is it that, that we just think we're going to skip to that particular layer with our X's and O's and just assume because, because I'm the adult in the room and I have the whistle or I have the voice or I'm the one that is sort of the authoritative figure in here. That because I say something, that goes. And because I say something and that goes, that it's your responsibility as the learner to just simply do it. And again, like, but do we actually learn anything? And again, we've talked about like, you know, we sort of love to invoke the, the the John Woodenisms and things like that when they become convenient. But we we look at these really great coaches in the past, but they were all teachers. They were educators. They taught, you know, junior high. They taught high school. They they did that work. And it's like why? It's to me, it's no coincidence why the best teachers are those best. They're the best coaches are those best teachers. And when you think that they're they're not just viewing their gym as practice, they're viewing it as an actual learning environment. And their job is not to cram in the things on the practice plan in the most efficient way or fastest way possible. It is to craft the environment that is most conducive for learning. And then not just for learning, but learning for all 15 players that might be in that gym or if you're a football coach, all 85, if you're a college football coach, all 115, you know, of those players or your position coach, however many you're dealing with. And then you've, we've got to understand that, that, you know, the the climate piece to this, that, that climate is constantly evolving and changing. And that your 15 players in your gym on Tuesday might be a lot different when they come into the gym on Wednesday your 15 players in segment one of practice might be different by the time we hit segment eight of practice because of things that they have going on outside their lives and things that go on within that practice. And I, I feel like we get to the point where we just assume everybody will be these robots and we just sort of plug in a formula, and you know, whatever is just supposed to spit out the other end of the machine. And it's, it's, it's a lot messier than that. That's not the case for us. And so I, I do want to just kind of mention that, okay, yes, we could talk about the environment piece, but don't forget about those more foundational pieces, because who, who's going to be more likely to learn from you, somebody that trusts you and is engaged and motivated or somebody that's, you know, completely tuning you out. And so there's that legwork and that recruiting that has to be done. Um, and I don't know if there's a way we can maybe link this, um, you know, in the show notes or something like that, but I, I always go back to that congruence model that we have. And we talk about, you know, performance, the two things that are most closely tied to performance are engagement and motivation. And then the two things that are most closely tied to engagement and motivation are all individual values, skills, needs, abilities. It's different for everybody. And if we're not tapped in to what engages and motivates our players or our learners, then we're going to have a really difficult time you know, making sure that learning and and true learning is actually taking place, which means that we're not elevating our performance. And I I think more of that sort of air quotes old school way is your engagement and motivation comes with you as soon as you walk in the gym or on the field. You know, you're supposed to pack. Yeah, you're supposed to have it right. You're supposed to have it right away, right away. It's not my job to do that. And I I get that, you know, you played in the 70s, 80s, 90s, like it might have been easier to bring the engagement and motivation with you because you didn't have it anything else going on, you know, there weren't as many distractions, the world wasn't quite as as big and as small at the the same time, you weren't constantly inundated with social media and text messages and, you know, TikTok apps and all these kinds of things where there's a lot of things that are that are competing for somebody's engagement and motivation. And we then as the teacher or the coach have to compete for that as well. And if we're just going to assume that they're going to pack it with them, that's a fallacy. And we're we're going to end up you know banging our head against the wall every single day just assuming that that's going to be the case. So let's take
1: this may, maybe in another direction or sort of drill this down a little bit. So I think there's a couple of different points and questions that that we're going to hit, and and I want to go back to something I'd heard. I don't know who said this, and and you know leave a comment whatever if you can figure out if you can remember, but. I remember there was an NBA skills coach or there was an NBA coach who said that, you know, he's worked with a, a hundreds of different guys. And the one question that they all want the answer to is, can you help me get better? And that comes from a place of, can you help me get my next contract? Can you help me get better? Can you help me learn? You know, especially if I'm just in traded or whatever it is. And so I think as a teacher, and, not, and, and I'm saying teacher as in a classroom teacher, right? Somebody who is trained in the art of teaching, somebody who has experienced, you know, 150 kids on their roster over the course of five classes that they're teaching out of seven periods in a day. Can you help every learner get better? Because at the end of the day, that's what they want. Especially if they are the captive audience that has chosen to walk into that gym that day. Hmm. Right? Kyle, you you have never had a class. Correct me if I'm wrong. You you were a teacher for 12 years, right? Yep. Yep. I was a teacher for seven and a half. 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 (laughs) Right. So between the two of us, we have 20 years of classroom experience. Can you think of a class period that you had where every single kid wanted to be there?
0: That's a tough ask. I can't imagine. I, I think that the, the answer is no. I think yeah. the
1: answer is no. Right. And truth be told, my classes were electives. Kids chose to take them and they still didn't want to be there. Right. Yeah. Because there invariably there was the kids that might've been dropped into the class. There was kids that, you know, they, they weren't getting along with whatever teacher they had that period. And I, <laughs> you know, I remember my principal telling me, you know, my, my class was the dumping ground for all the kids that nobody else wanted, but they were never a problem in my class. And I wonder why that was, because there was a level of engagement and motivation. And when you think about the environment that you're able to design in your classroom, which, you know, coaches stick with us here, because this is really, really salient stuff to you, especially if you coach at a level where you don't have a teaching responsibility, right? High school coaches, middle school coaches, you guys, y'all have teaching responsibilities, like, we might be preaching to the choir right now, but for everyone's sake, let's think about these factors of environmental design. And it goes back to that question, can you help me get better? Can you help me get better? So the best classrooms to me, all right, and and Kyle, feel free to jump in, correct me if I'm wrong here. The best classroom design and the best classrooms that I have ever been in, either as a learner or as a teacher, and and for background, I have taught special ed, middle school math in a resource room. And as an inclusion teacher, I've taught high school business. I've taught high school marketing. I've taught AP classes. I have taught non-AP classes. I have taught adults. And that's what my background is in, is in teaching adults in higher education. And I parlayed that into a high school teaching career that I thought was very successful. So I've taught other teachers or aspiring teachers how to be teachers as well right and so in those environments the ones that I've been in that have been the most successful the best classrooms we've ever been in number one the task is appropriately challenging for everyone in the room the task is appropriately challenging for everyone in the room so I want if you're a coach look at what you're doing in practice is each task appropriately challenging for every player on your roster? Kyle, what does that make you think of? Do you think of differentiation when I'm talking about that?
0: Yeah, I just go, I, anytime we talk about that, I think of Goldilocks. I think about not, not too hot, not too cold, warm. And it, it takes me into, um, you know, all of the the books I've read from Haley on flow. And I don't know if anybody's interested in that sort of thing, but um I, I encourage you to, to grab some of Mahaley's readings and, and, and sort of study that. And it's sort of the same thing where when you really sort of try to find your your the most joyous moment where you are the most engaged, you sort of get lost in whatever it is you're doing. There has to be some sort of challenge to that task, right? But if the task is too hard, we're gonna, we're gonna sort of tap out, opt out of that. It's, it's no longer fun if I can't experience some type of success with that. And if it's too easy, I'm gonna get bored and I'm gonna lose that. And then and we go back there to the art of all of this, being able to turn the dials up and down of you know, what is appropriate and what is too hard, what is too easy. And then you're having to juggle that with everybody in the classroom. And so if you're thinking you know, about that from a, you know, creating a, a lab experiment in science, or you're, you know, you're putting together a shooting drill, you've got to be able to have scaffolded variations and, you know, differentiate between the skill levels that are in the room, because I don't know about you, I've never had a team where everybody was equally skilled. I've Mm -hmm. never had a classroom where every learner was equally skilled in reading, writing, thinking, critical thinking, you know, motivation, engagement, any of those things. Everybody kind of comes in with a little bit different spot and again, I think this is where like just truly the amazing thing um, about classroom teachers is they do this with potentially 150 kids, you know, every single day and every day is a new day. You know, we don't you, we recycle the same drills and practice over and over again. We don't recycle the same lesson. We might recycle techniques, but like you said, we have to move on to the next thing. You know, once we cover photosynthesis, we have to talk about cellular respiration. Now we, those things are tied together and there are themes and we might have certain ways that we want to sort of get, but if you don't get to that, we can't move on to the next thing. And, and there are some, you know, some cases I think too, with offensive defensive philosophies where, you know, we have to lay the foundation and we want to move on. But a lot of times we end up a lot of, a lot of coaches practice plans look awfully similar (laughs) day one to day 30. There's not a whole lot of difference, you know? Mm -hmm. So if day one's not working, What's the likelihood that day thirty is going to be working, and you can't just recycle that thing over and over and over again um, and, and again it's it's why I think I think teachers have got one of the hardest jobs out there and they're some of the most skilled people because they've got to be able to do these things and I would count us among those people um, it's just it it was it is fascinating to me that it it took such a long time into my coaching career. Um, before realizing that you could be that same person that you didn't have to reinvent a new character um, and try to try to go about it completely differently. And so when I think about practice, like block versus, you know, block drills, you know, versus more of like a game sense approach. And I had the game sense approach in class. We weren't doing a lot of block drilling in class and it worked, but then I would go to practice and it was the same rote, you know, just bare bones crap over and over and over again. And then I wondered why it never translated into a game, which is really our exactly. test, right? That was our, the practices were the lessons and the games were the assessments. And we weren't seeing the lessons show up in the assessments. And and it just, it baffled me for the longest time. And, and again, if they're out there and you are sort of saying, hey, this is me, or this was me, reach out and kind of let us know, because I love talking to coaches about how you came to that realization um and what you've sort of d- done to to kind of move back that and try not to fall back into those traps and i, I do think control is a big part of it like you, you mentioned earlier because nobody's playing defense against my class in a lot of ways like parents weren't showing up to watch me you know get my tail whipped by 30 in class mm-hmm. <laughs> but in basketball they were so the the i guess more pressure potentially is on you in in, in the games and you know, not a lot of people are losing their teaching jobs over a bad lesson. You know, where you you might fear that you're going to lose your job if you're not winning and losing games in the in the gym. And so there are the, the I think I do think the the pressures of that environment, um, you know, might might sway the way we do certain things. But I think it's it's trusting and leaning into the you know what makes you a successful teacher and trusting and leaning into that as a coach and sort of relinquishing some of that control. Um, with your players, but again, it's it's scary. It, it can be very difficult to do.
1: Yeah, and and you're it can be super difficult to do. And I think it, I didn't do a good job of it early in my career until I learned that it was okay to do. But I, I want to go back to this point you made about assessment before getting to the rest of these things about you know the the best environments that I uh, you know that here personally I've ever been in. But I I want to sort of maybe change the narrative if we can. I think when we say like you know, practices like class and then the games are an assessment. I don't want to say that the games are the assessment of the player and the coach. I want to say the games are the assessment of the environment we created in practice. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're assessing. And so coaches, like I know that we get judged and we get evaluated on winning and losing and, and you know, all of these sort of external formulas of what what makes a successful coach. But I think we can even shift that feedback. And this sort of feeds into the next point, but shifting that feedback from, hey, we lost this game, but let's dig a little bit deeper and see what parts of this game replicated our practice environment. Can we find our practice on the film? And if we can, great. Let's keep rolling with that because we're practicing the right things. We just need to get better at the things that are happening the most if we can't find our practice on the film, so if you can't find your star passing drill on the film, which please show me a clip if you have one, I fail to believe that it exists, but if it does, great. Like if you can't find your star passing drill on on the film, then maybe you need to cut that. And we have a resource actually that we use that's that's fantastic about how you rate the things you do in practice on their effectiveness of what you're trying to get out of it. And I think that's where we can reassess a lot about whether the game is the assessment of us as people or it's the assessment of our environment in which our players are being appropriately challenged at all levels. Um, Because I think, too, when you have kids that act out in class, right, maybe there's some kids that are super duper smart or they're super duper gifted or whatever it is, like they're high achievers or whatever, but they tend to act out when they are not being appropriately challenged. And so that's where too teachers have this, this incredible ability to know what all 33 kids in their class need in order to be successful. But we as coaches struggle then knowing, hey, I've got to be able to teach to the middle sometimes, but I also need to be able to keep my highest achievers locked in mentally and be able to appropriately challenge them with some different scaffolds and some differentiation of How I'm going to give them feedback about where their skill level is, as opposed to maybe the 15th kid on the team who's just struggling to be there right now. Mm -hmm. And so utilizing that ability to really reach that Goldilocks level of feedback with every single learner in your classroom, the same way we need to be able to do that with every single player in our gym. And that's hard, but that's why you hire assistant coaches who have that ability as well. And that's where the development for coaches has to go is being able not just to create those environments but maintain those environments and then helping people thrive in those environments because everyone is aligned on how we give each other feedback about the things that matter to that one individual learner in that one individual instance and not losing the individual for the sight of the team. Um, You know, the next thing I have here is, is and it's sort of related but it's it's a little bit different. I think it's pushing each learner to make growth from where they were. And so I think it's it's funny because we talk about like targets and we want everybody to to you know hit a certain benchmark or whatever it is but you've got your really 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 good players who maybe only need to improve or maybe they're only going to improve 5% that year. Yet our team mantra is 1% better every day. Well, that means that if that kid gets 1% better every day in five days, they will have maxed maxed out their season. They're done, done, right? So yes, the mantra is nice of 1% better every day. I think we've all said it. You know, we have clients who have that on the back of their shirts. Like, I get it. And maybe that's a little bit facetious because you can always improve at things. I'm not saying you can't. But I think when we're able to push each learner individually, and this goes back to that question, can you help me get better? By the time most teams hit midseason, their practice is all about team concepts. And so if we are not taking time to push each learner individually, to have enrichment work for our highest achievers to say, hey, we're still going to continue to get better, even though we need you to play this role right now, and we might have to do a little more team stuff. We have to find ways to push each learner forward. So I give you a great example from the classroom. This is when I taught AP Econ, but I actually did this, I think, I did this with my, like my intro to business classes too. I used to have them make the test. And so we would agree on a format for the test. So we had to have, you know, X amount of, you know, short answer questions, X amount of multiple choice, X amount of true, false, you know, whatever, whatever, right? And invariably, the groups that would then break out would make the test so much harder than I would ever make an assessment. But you know what? Every single kid in the classroom felt engaged, they felt motivated, and they were the ones who had ultimate control over their own improvement. And by them writing those questions and really having to think through putting an answer on paper to submit as an answer key, they were studying for the test they just didn't know it so when the time came to go take somebody else's test they already had mastery of the subject matter but they were being appropriately challenged and pushed individually to come up with something in care of somebody else and so they didn't want to let somebody else down by writing a crappy test Because they also were appropriately challenged and they were being pushed themselves to then answer the questions correctly on somebody else's assessment. And I can almost bet if you went back and asked some of those kids questions from those assessments, it might take them a while, but they could probably answer those questions again, which tells me that they learned instead of memorizing. And so when we think about relating that to the sporting context, you know, yeah, we can give them the scout we can give them the answers. We can run the same drills every single day and they're gonna get really, really, really good at that but they're also gonna be super bored. And when they are super bored, they are not learning. It doesn't mean you gotta have all the bells and whistles and all of that stuff, but you have to manage that environment to push each learner and be able then to close the loop with each learner and ask them whether they are feeling challenged, whether they are feeling pushed and when to pull back, when to push forward, and living sort of with that pace and with that piece, and turning a lot of that over to them to advocate for what they need, and being able to read those signs uh, from from
0: your learners. So something you, and your, your two points that you got me thinking about, um, and like the differentiating players, and um, you know, kind of teaching to the middle, but reaching the top, like how many times have you ever heard about a, a particular kid that like they're not a practice player but when it's the lights the come on but when the all lights the come on they're you know they're there they're just they're just they don't like practice they're not good at practicing but man when the game starts it you know that's that switch is flipped and it's like sometimes when I, I think about that it's like is that a is it a, is it a disservice to that player's ability to practice? Is it a compliment to their ability to sort of rise to the challenge? If that's even a thing, but really when I hear that, I think of that as that's more of like a shot at practice because the game environment is clearly what they are thriving in. And so if you've, if we've got a group, and maybe sometimes we've had even almost like teams that were kind of like this, like teams don't want to practice, but when the lights come on, Boom, they're ready to roll. And it's like, what are we doing to replicate the lights coming on? Why are we not turning the lights on every single time that we're in the gym or that we're in practice or we're creating that environment? So it's not to say that those those particular players or kids don't enjoy this or can't do it or they don't want to practice. They clearly do, and they're showing you where they're successful but we've got to go out and kind of meet them where they are and, and build that environment for them. And I think that's where a lot of times we're it's another uh, instance, perhaps where we're telling on ourselves as coaches. Now I've got these three, you know, these three defensive guys on my, you know, football coach, I'm a defensive coordinator. I got these three guys in my secondary that they just, man, they hate practice. They're just not good at it. But on Friday nights, man, they're ready to go. And it's like, well, then, what are you doing in practice to not turn the lights on for them? And I, I think that that's sort of the same thing with like kids in a classroom. Like you've got kids that are great in class, and maybe they're not great testers. And then you have sort of the reverse of that, where they 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 don't really love class, and they're not they're kind of dazing off, or they're doodling on their book, or they they don't come. They're they're always checking out the day before the test, but then they take the test and they knock it out of the park. And it's like they're clearly showing you what they are capable of. They have the skill to be successful. They are learning. They can learn. What are we doing to go and reach them to create that that lights on moment for those players or those students?
1: And I think what you just said, and, and coaches go back about 10 seconds, and Kyle said the words can learn. I think classroom teachers that are really, really good at their jobs have a firm belief that every learner can learn. And there are some, and Kyle, you know these people, where they were the ones in the teacher's lounge that you avoided, like the plague. Like, I never went into the teacher's lounge. Like, I didn't want to talk to these people about kids that were on my roster, like, you know, whatever. I, my wife tells me horror stories right now because she's still in the classroom. Like, I, I had no interest in talking to these people because they believed that students, whoever they were, student A, student B, didn't matter, that some of them did not have the capacity for learning. Mm. And that, to me, is like the cardinal sin of coaching, teaching, education, any of those things. If you say about a player that they are just too dumb to learn the plays or they can't learn or I can't reach them or they just don't practice hard, no, 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 no. You need to look in the mirror as the environment creator and figure out a way to challenge that individual individually and reach them individually to help them, help them learn and help them grow. And maybe their route to mastery, you need to provide multiple routes to mastery. But I think as, as we get into sort of the like competitive part of, of athletics, like we don't have time to do that. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, that player also doesn't have time to be belittled every day and waste their time with you while you try to serve everybody else on your team and you sort of forget about them because they ain't jumping on board with whatever you're doing, right? There is a give and take here. There has to be. Otherwise, we don't have what I think is is the third part of a really, really great classroom for the best classrooms I've been in, and that's a collaborative environment with individual focus within that collaboration. So here's a great example of that. Like we get into, you know, we get into practice and all of a sudden everything we do is team oriented and we're giving team feedback. Like we got to do this, we got to do that. That's all well and good. But if I don't feel like I'm getting better I'm not being appropriately challenged. I'm not being pushed myself. And I'm able to just sort of skate through. And then all of a sudden I have to do something individually and I'm, the spotlight is on me. Some players are okay with that. Some players are not, but if we're able to create a collaborative environment where players have to support one another in order to win. So hundred point games is a great example. I can't win hundred point games by myself. I can't win three on three by myself. If we're playing wildcat or something like that, I can't do it by myself. But my individual skill, my individual mastery has to be able to contribute to the group. And so when you think about that in a classroom setting, you can take it back to, you know, the, the the test idea that I talked about a few minutes ago, right? Can you help me get better? Well, that that question now extends to my teammates. What if I'm the best player on my team? I'm writing a great test. I know all the answers to this. My the rest of my, my group has no idea. How are we activating their individual skill? How are we activating their individual focus and their individual ideas to contribute to the group? And so when you get into this thing of like, all right, well, we're gonna have like, you know, <clears throat> the red team versus the white team, it's the starters versus the next five. Well, if you have 15 kids on your team, what are those other five kids doing, right? they're just sitting there watching somebody else get reps and they don't feel a part of the collaboration. And so thinking about ways, how do we get everybody first team reps in the classroom? Do you ever just have five kids sit on the side while the other 10 do the work? I don't think that ever happens in the classroom. If it does, it's it's an awful classroom, right? So how do we then activate in a collaborative manner each individual person's skill level to then increase it while collaborating with the entire group. doesn't mean you have to get every rep. It means you need to get first team reps and have an opportunity every day, an equitable opportunity every day to prove that you're on the path to mastery of whatever it is we're trying to do. And I think this goes back to what you were talking about with like photosynthesis and then cellular cellular respiration and all of those things. Like the interrelatedness of mastery of topics is something that we could probably do another podcast episode altogether about in terms of sport and how many of those skills are interrelated, but we choose to treat them as silos. And so we say like, okay, well, that kid's not a good passer. All right, well, what else can they do though? That kid is not a good ball handler. I don't want her throwing that pass, or I don't want him setting that screen, or he is not a very good rebounder. All right, but what other contributions can they make to this collaborative process?
0: So it's not all about just cold calling kids. And no, <laughs> and actually,
1: here just- you know what I'm going to say to that, Kyle. No. <laughs> Binary feedback for you. Yes, and no. It's not about that. Like Doug lamov is a great guy, but like a lot of the things that he espouses, and like, you know, edu celebrities like him espouse two coaches doesn't actually work. Right? And we can talk about like the psychologically safe environment that you have to have to even start cold calling in the first place. But that goes back to control. Like there is no opt-out in practice. Right. If you refuse to answer a question because you don't want to look stupid or you don't want to answer the question, like you're just going to get kicked out of practice. But if we have created an environment where I can cold call you because that's what we do here and you are like you're in a, a part of this collaborative process of learning, that's very different than just adopting cold calling because some guy told you that it was a good idea. Right. So unless you've gone through and actually taught in the classroom, I'm not saying like coaches that haven't done it or haven't taught in the classroom and weren't good classroom teachers aren't good coaches. Like I think there's good coaches at every every level. We discussed that in the last the last episode. Right. What I'm saying is you have to take all of those teaching tactics with a grain of salt and learn how those things actually work and the science behind them before you just start using them and thinking that when your kids do something and you say yes, that they're gonna understand what you're saying yes to, right? We are not clicker training a dog, right? We're not marking behaviors. We are dealing with people who have very complex emotions, very complex thoughts, and the one thing that they all want is your approval of what they did well and real tangible feedback on what they can do better. That's what learning environments create. But all, you know, all of a sudden we're in the middle of the season and I say we as coaches and all of that goes out the window because we got to prep for the next opponent and we right. don't have time to focus on the individual and their learning. But every single coach in this country and lar- and largely around the world, but I'm going to speak for the United States, the majority of coaches outside the NBA, the G League, the WNBA, and this isn't basketball, but relate this to whatever sport you coach, are scholastic coaches. right They coach at a school. Thus it is imperative, and that's college, that is high school, that is middle school, that's elementary school, it's imperative then that you mirror what's happening in the classroom in your program because you are an educator. And if you don't treat this as an educational experience where there is growth at heart, where the focus is individual growth, where the focus is team growth, where we're gonna take a group of people and move them from point A to point B in a way that is collaborative, that is appropriately challenging, that pushes all those learners, if we're not treating basketball like a class and engaging them and motivating every day, we're selling our learners short.
0: Yeah, and I, I think what you just said about, we gotta get to, and again, similar thing happens in, in classroom too. Like we have to teach the test, right? Like we have to get through certain things because at the end of the year we have that that EOC assessment you know that we get graded on as teachers that ultimately kind of defines what our year is going to be like right so that's sort of our game and our our scoreboard and result so we're having to to teach to the test so then learning all of a sudden becomes not very important the environment gets thrown out the window and it becomes okay we got to cram in these last few things and teach you tips and tricks to basically cheat this test in in some kind of way and that's what happens to us when we get into conference or district or whatever is like, right, all that stuff that we were working on, that all that kind of stuff has to go out the window because we're second time through the conference schedule and everybody's got more film and we have more film. And so we, we have to all of a sudden, you know, do these completely different processes um, the next time through because we've got a scout, you know, we've got more information, they've got more information, we have to break that down, we have to do all this and that when I feel like that's the sort of the, the the old school way of blooms that we've referenced earlier, like where we're trying to to teach you to the test by cramming all of this information in, and then we're we're just we're we're shocked, like we we continually are shocked why we don't actually know anything, and we do the whole you know Mike neighbors I've told you a thousand times type of deal, whereas if we would just stick with that that reimagined that re-defi- redefined blooms where we start with the create phase and we create something and then we apply it and then we break it down and we analyze it we sort of rock it in our in our own way and we evaluate it and we sort of you know go through that whole reflection awareness clarity and alignment part it's amazing how much we will learn along the way and we don't have to teach to the test because we've equipped our learners with the skills to figure out what they need to do on the test and 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 in the classroom where where we are a little bit different here the test isn't necessarily changing right like the test is what the test is but our assessment in sport is constantly changing and evolving it's dynamic we can't replicate last tuesday's soccer match to this thursday's soccer match they're they're going to be completely different right and it just excuse me it just seems to me like If we go from it that that redefined way, not only will we learn more things, but we will be able to adapt and sort of, you know, handle certain situations almost on the fly. Whereas if you constantly stick to your rote prescribed, you know, checklist of things, well, as soon as the environment or the test or the assessment or whatever doesn't follow that exact formula, we're screwed. And our players are and our, 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 our students are. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, like that, that worked so well in practice, in my controlled environment, in my quote unquote lab. But then all of a sudden, I'm not in the lab anymore. And that, that dynamic set that we worked on five on O, 500 times in practice, and it worked every single time. The only key was that we had to enter the ball into the right wing. Well, guess what? the team you're playing tonight is way more athletic than you and they don't let you enter the ball into the right wing. Okay. What next? Mm -hmm. And it's as if we don't understand what the next question on the test is going to be. And we just have to rip the whole thing up. And then we want to start over again. But if we would go from it, from that, again, that sort of re re reverse engineered way. Okay. Well now we're not just equipping them with answers. We're equipping them with the ability to think and the ability to problem solve, and the ability to to figure things out and find solutions as they arise, not just memorizing formulas. Like Kendall's in first grade, and we're having to do all these flashcards, you know, addition and subtraction flashcards and stuff. And I get why we have to do that. I get that if you can look at a flashcard and see four plus five, and you know that it's nine, like there is some there's value in that because the faster mm-hmm. that your mind processes things like that, the more Sort of bandwidth your mind has to create space for other other things I, I i get that part but it's as if we only want to cram in the things that we want them to memorize and then we don't allow for the space for our players or our learners to think and so if if, if kendall can't automatically remember that four plus five equals nine i want her to have two or three different ways that she can figure that out you know whether it whether it be using her fingers or you know thinking of a story or drawing a picture or something like that because in my mind her ability to create those models is more valuable to her down the road and than it is remembering that four plus five might equal nine mm-hmm. because all you're telling me when you say that four plus five equals nine is that you just happen to remember something not that you're able to actually figure it out and, and this might be a conversation for another time where we have you know students that are good quote unquote good at school and they're just good at sort of remembering things but then when they get out of their controlled classroom lab environment and they have to sort of survive in the real world they struggle with it there's a there's a lot of valedictorians out there who have a hard time being successful at work Mm -hmm. because they were good in their controlled environments but they didn't learn how to adapt outside of that there's probably, I'm willing to bet, even way more kids who struggled in school in the controlled lab environment that are wildly successful in the real world because of their ability to process, to think, to, to sort of zig and zag and, and kind of not take no for an answer and figure things out and are okay with failure and, you know, all of those kind of train ugly type of, type of mentality. And so it's like again, if we can do this in the classroom, if we can replicate that in the gym, then it also it it also doesn't just equip I think our our players to be successful. Man, that sounds like that takes a load off of me as their coach. Mm-hmm. Like game day sounds so much more appealing all of a sudden. If I can trust the fact that my players are going to be able to figure things out, and I don't have to do as much. And is it is it Mike McKay that talks about this? Um, it might be, sort of like yeah. the like the you know the the game the practices is or you know for players or, or for coaches and games are for players I'm butchering that 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 quote somebody reach out and let me know what I'm trying to say here but basically kind of saying like when, when the game gets here like you as the teacher you don't help your students on the test like you have right. to get out of their way like in fact if you get caught helping them you you get in trouble <laughs> right like You're going to get in trouble if you're helping your students pass a test, but we try to help our, our players pass the test all dang game long. And so imagine if your players had to play without you there, I bet in a lot of ways, the players, players probably would enjoy it. Um, because it'd be one less thing for them to have to worry about. Um, which again is, is probably a conversation for another time. Um, but I, I, I think if, if anything going into your next practice, or if you're, You know, if you're listening to this at your desk right now and you're actually working on your practice plan right now, hopefully this is starting to, you know, jog some things in your memory or think about the last practice. Maybe you have a spring sport and you won't be practicing for quite a while, or whatever the case may be. Or you're listening to this in the spring, and and you're you're getting ready for next fall. Start viewing these things as, uh, or viewing yourself not so much as coach or even teacher, but view yourself as professional environment designer, professional environment creator, and and how that different lens gets you to view the not just the things that you're doing, but the questions that you're going to ask. And then we could get into conversations on how we deliver feedback through things like, you know, affirmative versus assertive language and those kinds of things. Um, which again, maybe a topic for another day. But if there are certain skills that you have out there where you realize, hey, I'm pretty good at this in the classroom like I was, but I'm struggling to see this stuff translate, like you said on the game film, go back to your roots as the classroom teacher and I guarantee you you'll start finding more of those solutions, um, you know and it's it's not something that you have to go find in a book or somewhere else if you've already got them.